You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, just how indebted are Canadian households and British Columbian households? We explore the findings of MNP's latest consumer debt index and what it means for British Columbians. And later, financial executives are drowning in data, what that means for banks and financial institutions. First, BIV hosts our annual BC CEO Awards next week on November 13th. Join us as we celebrate six distinguished chief executives. More information on the event can be found at BIV.com events. You can also join us November 22nd at the BC Export Awards. Finalists across nine categories will be recognized and winners selected. And finally, on November 26th, we discuss Hong Kong as part of our BIV Talks series presented by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. We'll discuss the protests, the unrest, the politics, and what all of that means for business. For more information on all of our events, visit BIV.com events. Here's our show. British Columbian household budgets have gotten a little bit tighter. The latest MNP Consumer Debt Index reveals by just how much. And Lana Gilbertson, licensed insolvency trustee with MNP, joins me now to discuss. Lana, welcome back to the show and thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Haley. What does the latest index tell us about the level of consumer debt in BC? Well, what the index is telling us is, I think, the the declining uh, positivity um, among British Columbians that they'll be able to cover their living expenses and uh, and debt payments at the end of the month. There's less wiggle room in British Columbians' budgets, and it's at its lowest point ever. That's interesting. So looking at, and this, this index comes out every quarter, what were some of the biggest changes around confidence and around that wiggle room from, say, the last quarterly update to the one that came out most recently? Absolutely. So um, on average, when it comes to uh, how much money British Columbians have left over every month, uh, on average, British Columbians are left with $601 at the end of every month. But 45% of British Columbians, so almost half of us, are left with less than $200. Uh, So this is about $129 less than our tracking in June. And again, as I mentioned, it's, it's at its lowest point since tracking began. Why do you think that is? Why are we reaching that lowest point now? I think that there's a, a variety of reasons for that, uh, but primarily, uh, you know, I think that uh, British Columbians uh, are generally not prepared for things like unexpected expenses or unexpected life events. We have less less savings generally, and and less of an, an ability to absorb the unexpected, leaving us turning to debt. Um, and, and also, you know, this has been talked about a lot, but the rising cost of living. Wages just haven't ca- kept pace. We know that the cost of living has skyrocketed in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, we're turning to credit to, uh, to, cover, to, to cover the shortfall. Give me a sense of over the longer term what having less than $200 at the end of the month means for things like retirement or stability when it comes to a household? 
That is a great question, and it's you know it's it's something that uh, that I I think about almost daily in my practice. You know, I I uh, I meet with people who are drowning in debt and have no retirement savings, and increasingly they're at a later age in life. So you know, in their fifties and sixties, and even in their seventies, and uh, you know, I and I I am quite concerned actually for Canadians generally and and what this is going to mean. Um, you know, we, we just, uh, there's a lack of preparedness out there for the future. I know, and I'm not sure if this is really relevant, but there used to be a, a million dollar figure that you should retire and aim to have a million dollars in savings. Now, of course, that is very dependent on where you are and what kind of lifestyle you want. What's the likelihood that instead of actually seeing people retire with lots of savings, they retire instead with significant amounts of debt? Are British Columbians concerned about that? Definitely, and uh, you know one of the one of the uh, the fastest growing uh, you know demographics uh, in respect of insolvency filings is uh, over fifty five. Um, you know it's uh, there's there's increasingly uh, you know older older British Columbians Canadians even that are you know they they don't have savings their income is declining or their health is declining as well. And, uh, and they're, they're using credit uh, to help cover living expenses. And of course, you know, that only lasts so long. And, and so increasingly, we're finding people at this, in this age group who are facing a formal insolvency proceeding. And I wonder, too, what kind of pressure that might place on younger generations within a family who are then called upon to try and help parents or grandparents out. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a concern if it, you know, and I'm sure it it already is placing, um, you know, pressure on households. Of course, you know, we we've seen it the other way around, and this is, I think, part of the part of the problem that that older British Columbians have, have had is trying to help out their younger, you know, their their kids, right? They're, even their adult children. Adult children are staying at home longer. They're needing help with down payments for homes and things like that. So, you know, certainly, I think that they're they're can and will be a reversal of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I think it's good financial practice to try and pay down debt first and also to try and be saving. But if there's a significant number of British Columbian households that are making less or leaving less than $200 in their bank account at the end of the month, it makes it very difficult to try and do that. What's some of the advice or best practices for individuals who really it's not necessarily a matter of them spending frivolously. They just don't necessarily have the revenue to tackle some of their financial problems. What are some of the options available to them? Well, um, you know, I can say this. If, if they are... Uh, if they are drowning in debt, and you know that's certainly you know who's drowning in debt, it's certainly relative to the situation because you know ten thousand dollars could be uh, you know a lot of debt to to one British Columbian and and perhaps not a problem for someone else. But I would say that you know absolutely go and see a professional about um, about the ways to tackle the debt or eliminate it through a legal proceeding. A licensed insolvency trustee is a government-regulated professional 
who is trained to assess the situation, advise on the options. Um, a consultation with a trustee is free and it's confidential. Um, another professional is a, an accredited not-for-profit credit counselor. Um, they are also trained uh, to assess people and help them deal with debts as well. So getting some professional advice um, about the situation would be always my number one piece of advice. Um, but when I'm, you know, sort of sitting face to face with people that have limited incomes, um, and, you know, certainly when they're, when they go through something like a bankruptcy and the credit is cut off, it, it can be quite, uh, quite scary for people when now they're faced with living on the, you know, their, their limited income with, with, with no other resources coming in. And, um, you know, we talk about, of course, the, you know, how to be resourceful. And it's things like uh, looking to BC housing. Uh, for people who are over the age of 55, many don't realize this, but they do qualify for housing assistance. Um, or if they're single parents or, or have a disability. Um, also, for, for income earners, you know, um, you know, it's, you know, talking to employers about ways to improve, uh, you know, is there on-the-job training? How can you boost your wages? Because in my mind, you know, our, our incomes are our number one asset. Um, it's our incomes, you know, unless unless you've got family and you're inheriting money, the reality is it's your income that's going to allow you to, uh, to, um, to save money, to acquire assets. So, I definitely counsel people on are there ways that you can take training or somehow boost your income, look at your career. Um, but it's, you know, it's certainly a, a challenge. Um, you know, I, and I will say that there are always opportunities, uh, at least in the, you know, with the people that I see daily, when we sit down and look at the budget, there are always room for, there's always room for improvement. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are in the habit of not, you know, not spending enough time or any time really managing the finances or looking at where the money is going. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it flows out so quickly. And mm-hmm. so when people really sit down and, and take a, an, an honest uh, look at where their money's going, they find that there's always room to, to cut back or to make different choices. And I, you know, most people that I work with, uh, they absolutely agree that they could have made different choices. So I think we all have a little bit more, uh, a little bit more control than, than sometimes we realize. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I'm curious what you think about whether some of these financial challenges are most acute and primarily happening in more expensive urban areas in BC where there have been some pretty acute affordability issues or whether you think that some of these problems are happening throughout the province including in smaller communities what sense do you get about that well that's a great question and i was just looking at uh federal uh, federally released insolvency statistics our regulator keeps track of insolvencies across the country and regionally and uh you know I, british columbia has had relatively stable insolvency rates for um you know n- a number of years they've they started inching up in 2018 although in 2019 we are seeing a rather significant uptick in insolvency rates and um and you know you 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 might think that you would be seeing that in in Vancouver but in fact you know we're we're seeing it in the Fraser Valley we're seeing it on Vancouver Island 
And so it's, you know, again, I say these financial problems tend to be relative, um, you know, in, in, in a, a you know, in Vancouver, wages are higher than they are on Vancouver Island. So, um, you know, while the cost of living may be higher in Vancouver, um, you know, people seem to be perhaps more equipped to absorb um, mm-hmm. those costs. Although that's, I'm, I'm generalizing only. But no, we do see we do see financial problems across the province. Um, everyone really is feeling tapped. I would say. Um, and, and in a bit of a financial pressure cooker, it seems to be universal. And it's, of course, you know, the results, we're seeing the same results across Canada. And I think one of the potentially concerning things that underscores all of this is at the national level and provincial level, we've had fairly strong economic results over the last number of years. And yet, as you say, many British Columbians do feel tapped. I'm curious what some of the risks are to the overall economy and to communities and households if we continue to see a slowdown and if, if and when we see more of an economic downturn? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, again, a great, uh, great question. Um, and uh, what, I, what I do know is that in 2009, of course, when we had the, a global economic downturn and, and we certainly saw effects here in British Columbia, there was an immediate uh, increase in insolvency filings. And so uh, what, I, what I do believe is that, you know, if we do see a slowdown in British Columbia, uh, you know, we're definitely going to see a corresponding increase in insolvency rates. That's just what history shows us is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Lana, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on with your insight. Thank you for having me, Haley. That's Lana Gilbertson, a licensed insolvency trustee with MNP. Canadian CEOs are drowning in data. A new study from IT Group commissioned by TransUnion explores some of the challenges and opportunities financial institutions and businesses face when managing the mountains of data they now have access to. Joining me on the line to talk more about the study is Matt Fabian, Director of Research and Analysis at TransUnion Canada. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, No problem. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about this study and some of the most interesting or salient things that it found. Yeah, it was an interesting study because we, we've we known for a while, obviously, uh, in the industry that there's more and more data coming online. And what we wanted to understand was really how are um, financial institutions worldwide coping with the, the first of all, the um, size of data and the type of data that's coming uh, online as well as um, just the speed with which it, it uh, comes. And so uh, things like technology and systems and, and especially things like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And what we found is that um, certainly it's a challenge for a lot of uh, financial institutions across the world, uh, partly because of old legacy systems and trying to get uh, you know uh, data systems and data storage that is uh, aligned to the size and, and speed of data that's coming. Uh, and also just trying to get a handle on the emerging technology. And so uh, while a lot of the respondents to our survey indicated it's, it's, uh, it's a struggle, it's definitely a focus, and they're definitely investing and spending for the future. 
One of the stats that jumped out to me was 65% of respondents say they're challenged in part by volume, but also the fractured nature of data. Tell me a little bit about that and why that's a pain point for executives. It's it's the um, it, it's the type of data really is is the issue now. And so you think back even just to 10 years ago, uh, and a lot of them had. Uh, a lot of very um, still large size, but a lot of them had a lot of customer level data that was stored and organized in uh, relational database systems, pretty common, um, pretty well known. Now, the type of data that they're starting to get into to create better customer insights, better customer experience, more real-time digital experiences uh, are things like social media, um, even call center uh, you know, recordings that have been converted to text. Uh, through to uh, clickstream data. And so um, those type of data can be, in many cases, very unstructured. And so having um, the tools and the systems capable of, A, ingesting the, you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions of data points a day that are coming in from some of these digital sources, uh, and then trying to make sense of them in their, sort of in their very unstructured ways become quite a challenge. So what did you learn about how executives plan on maybe easing some of those pain points when it comes to not just collecting data, but also analyzing it and getting some value out of it? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that they're really focused on is uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so storing the data, there are systems, obviously, like Hadoop and other pretty common systems to store a lot of this data. It's really trying to make sense of it. And so uh, more and more, they're investing in things like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies, um, which can take uh, just massive amounts of data and start to sort through and look at uh, correlations and, and different kinds of analytics that uh, maybe data scientists or humans uh, would take much longer to to go through. Um, the challenge they're having with that, though, is in a lot of cases, some of these new applications like machine learning can be a bit of a black box. And so you still have to be careful that the um, you know the the outcomes of some of these models or some of the correlations that um, you know these models are making are actually real because the machine you know, obviously the nature of the name of it machine learning it's learning so as it makes mistakes or as it um, you know arbitrarily decides that these two uh, things are correlated uh, somebody needs to come back and kind of tell it it maybe not maybe so uh, and it'll continue to learn and get smarter but it has to go through that process. Mm, interesting. Are executives and institutions willing to back some of these intentions with dollars? Do they plan on investing in things like machine learning and automation? Pretty significantly. In fact, you know, if you just take a look at Canada, most of the big banks have already opened up innovation labs and tech centers, uh, taking more of a very entrepreneurial and, and you know, what we call more of a fintech approach to um, you know, trying to apply these things and, and create almost like learning labs. Uh, and we've done that at TransUnion globally as well. We've, we've created a, a thing called Innovation Lab where we can just bring in massive amounts of data with a client uh, and just sit there with a few of our data scientists, a few of their data scientists and business folks in the room and just kind of crunch through this stuff uh, in real time and look at it and kind of what would go what would be maybe two or three weeks of iterations back and forth, you can sit in a room with the, you know, sort of massive uh, machines and, and video screens everywhere and kind of, um, you know, do all sorts of scenarios and run different, uh, different kinds of uh, strategies in real time. And so I think that's what the banks are trying to do as well. And there's, they're making big investments in that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important point you raised. I'm curious what being in this data-driven age with all of these new technologies and the amount of data, what has it meant for how financial institutions have to operate? How do they maybe have to change how they think about things like even communicating across divisions and sharing information? Yeah, certainly it's, it's created that, uh, that, that need. Um, 
I think one thing that's happening more uh, is uh, obviously uh, interdepartmental um, because it, it's more of a 360 view of the customer now where before it was very siloed. And if you worked in, for example, the insurance area of a large bank and a credit card division of a large bank, you know, you wouldn't necessarily ever talk. But um, as the data is becoming more ubiquitous and consumers don't make that differentiation, right? I mean, if you think of yourself uh, going to a bank, you don't think about, well, I have a relationship with the credit card people and the mortgage people and I, you know, that's that group and that's that group. All you think about is I have a relationship with a bank. Right. And so that's what, um, that's what the banks are, you know, they're, they're catching up to that. And, uh, and most have caught up to that. And they're saying, you know, we can't have that siloed view of the consumer where we're saying, you know, love you over here, not so sure about you over here. You get white glove treatment over here, but maybe not here. And so they're trying to build this 360 degree view of the customer um, to create that uniform customer experience. And um, that's what's really been driving a lot of this, because especially with uh, less and less people coming into branches, uh, there's less human interaction. Everything's done online. And so, uh, you know, and, and younger consumers are much more fickle in the sort of what we call the Amazon age, I guess, is you know, if you're sitting on your mobile phone trying to do something and it's not working out, your experience goes way down and, and that affects the relationship. And so I think they're making those investments um, internally to say we need to be more clear and, and sort of um, uh, have one view. And I think the other thing that's happening is they're investing externally a bit more. And so um, there's a lot more um, discussion around build internally versus partner um, because there's a lot of, the, you know, this whole area of big data and, and analytics has sprung up a whole new industry. And there's a lot of smart, small companies that are looking to partner with uh, banks and kind of build uh, and bolt on some of their new technology onto the banking platform because the banks have the data. These guys have some of the tech. Do you think executives are feeling any kind of pressure to make investments more quickly and adapt to some of these changes more quickly? Is there kind of a, a sense that there's a deadline or that you need to do it now and that we can't wait five years to innovate? Yeah, there certainly is. Uh, there, there's certainly an onus to be ahead of the curve. I mean, they're all competing, right? So it's sort of uh, whoever can get first mover advantage or get that extra insight that can drive a better customer experience is going to capture market share. And so uh, there's already a, it's already a hyper-competitive industry. And so uh, certainly as these things move on, and I think it's not just competing with themselves. I mean, they, they, like I said earlier, they, they've made that connection and they understand that this is becoming more and more of a digital mobile economy. And so if you, can't, um, if you can't make the investment to build your um, interfaces with consumers and make decisions in almost real time, um, you're going to lose on that customer experience battle and you'll get, you, you'll get penalized by consumers who expect, mm -hmm. you know, I can click two buttons and I should, be, you know, I should be able to get approved or get what I want or get my banking done. Um, and, you know, we've, we did this survey across the world, and it's not just a Canadian or North American phenomenon. There's, you know, in, we, we looked at India and other uh, countries, and they're all, you know, they're all at different stages of maturity, but it's the focus for everyone. Yeah, very interesting. In the Canadian context, to what extent do our regulations around data collection and privacy complicate how banks and institutions go about understanding the data that, that they're receiving? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a big thing. I mean, obviously, banking data is very sensitive. Consumers are sensitive. There's been a, a few data breaches uh, over the last little while, and and you know we've seen that, um, and we know how that affects uh, consumer experience. Uh, banks and financial institutions have seen how that affects them. 
Um, so, you know, security is obviously a concern. Uh, there's, you know, with the new privacy rules and regulations that have been put in place, there's a lot more uh, scrutiny around what you can see and what you can't see about a consumer. And a lot of it is more permission-based. And so we're moving towards this permission-based data economy where, um, you know, ultimately down the road, there's this, sort of this notion that open banking, this the, uh, it's a structure that is happening in England right now, or in the UK, a few other countries are experimenting. Canada's been the Bank of Canada and um, the government of Canada have been looking at it, and it might be something coming to Canada over the next uh, several years, but that'll open up the, the floodgates even more in terms of um, be, getting access to all this bank data through open APIs. And so, you know, just even trying to figure that out from a consumer protection and a privacy perspective is, is sort of job number one. And so uh, it's something that the banks are very keenly aware of. And in this new kind of permission-based economy, the more, um, the more you can... Um, do to kind of engage with the consumer so that they want to give you that data and they give you permission to use that data to make better decisions, um, the more you'll get. And it's sort of a give-to-get relationship that's emerging where, um, you know, consumers are, you know, in some cases willing to say, I'm willing to share a bit more with you, maybe data that you don't have about me, as long as that leads to a better outcome for me. I'm not just going to give it to you so you can, you know, uh, do whatever you want with it. It's more, hey, if this gets me a better rate on my mortgage or if this gets me a better price on, on a banking product, um, then yes, I will share it with you. But if it's just for the sake of giving it to you, then maybe not. <laughs> no, there's value in it. I kind of want something in exchange for giving up a little bit of privacy. I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. And they should, right? And that's, that's, that's the relationship that's going to emerge. And even more with open banking, that, that relationship and is going to become very much more important. And those are the new privacy rules that are getting put in place. And so understanding as this data floods in, what you can use it for, what you can't use it for, um, how you can target, how you can't target, those become uh, critical issues. And there's teams of people just in the financial institutions around the world trying to figure that out. I believe it. Matt, pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Anytime. Thanks. That's Matt Fabian, Director of Research and Analysis at TransUnion Canada. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, and all of our episodes are available at biv.com slash audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.